Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. This is the Word of the Lord. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God... We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that your word is living light. And we pray this morning that the light of the gospel would be shed abroad in our hearts through the preaching of your word. Show us your glory in the face of Jesus Christ so that your saving mercies may sanctify us and encourage us in all our labors. Establish the work of our hands by your glorious power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Martin Luther the Protestant reformer, was generally a a cheerful man. But one day Luther was feeling really down. He was discouraged. The Pope was constantly opposing him. His colleagues were fighting. He felt the weight of being a, a pastor and a father and a husband. His health was not all that great. He was in pain from kidney stones. And so he was kind of moping around the house muttering something under his breath. He was quite grumpy. And his wife, Katharina von Bora, or Katie as he called her, noticed. Now Luther's friends suggested that he go out and get some fresh air, which he did. But he came back, as, came back home as miserable as ever. And when he went into the sitting room, he was shocked to see his wife sitting down, dressed in all black clothes, along with her children, also dressed in black. When Luther saw this, he immediately understood that they were dressed for a funeral, and he blurted out, Oh no, Katie, who died? To which Katie replied, Haven't you heard? The Lord in heaven is dead. Luther became furious when he heard that, and he said, What are you talking about, woman? God is not dead. Katie replied, oh, well, by the way you were acting, I thought he was. 
And so I decided to join you in your mourning. My husband, Dr. Martin Luther, would never be this sad if he had a living God to trust in. So Luther got the message and recovered. You know, the Luthers had a strange sense of humor. And, and different biographers tell that story a little differently. And while I don't recommend that you go and try this tactic on someone, I hope you get the point. We get discouraged when we take our eyes off the Lord. This happens to all of us, including myself. You know, contrary to what most people think, I'm a person who gets discouraged quite easily. Just ask my wife. Now, with all that was going on at Corinth... The Apostle Paul certainly had plenty of reasons to be discouraged, didn't he? For one, well, the church at Corinth was in grave spiritual danger because certain false apostles had crept into the congregation and they were trying to convince the Corinthians of the continuing ministry of the Mosaic Law. These men had failed to see that the age of the law was over, that God had always intended the old covenant to be a temporary administration. They had failed to understand that the law was meant to condemn lawbreakers and not to save them. And so Paul teaches the Corinthians in this letter that the glory of the old covenant was temporary. It pointed forward to the coming of Jesus and the permanent glory of the new covenant, with Jesus inaugurated by his death on the cross. Any message that turns Christian back to the Mosaic law was and is contrary to the gospel which Paul had preached. Besides, the fact that the Corinthians had the Spirit meant that the new covenant was in effect. They had received the Spirit through faith in the message of Christ and Him crucified. They didn't receive the Spirit by law-keeping. And as an apostle of, of Jesus Christ, Paul was a minister of the new covenant. And he had been entrusted with a ministry that was far more glorious than that of the Old Covenant. But Paul's problems were not merely doctrinal. That is what these men were teaching. No, these men themselves were problematic. They were slandering Paul and attacking his apostleship and his character and his motives. And even though a majority of the membership had repented when they received Paul's letter, you remember that earlier severe letter? Even though that had happened, there was still an unrepentant minority that was being influenced by these false apostles. These false apostles were saying that Paul was corrupting the message, that he was obscuring it, that he was tampering with God's word because he was saying that Christians are not obligated to keep the law of Moses. And furthermore, they accused him of being crafty and, and underhanded. You see, Paul did not accept financial support from the Corinthian church for, for preaching to them. And, and he did this for several reasons, and one of which was that he didn't want to be identified with the public speakers of, of Corinth. And so, for these false apostles, that was very suspicious. And so, they might have said something like this to the Corinthians. They would have said, what's up with that Paul not accepting money from you for preaching. I mean, it goes against our culture. It's offensive. It's highly suspicious. Just, just look at all the great speakers in Corinth. Look at how much they charge. And, and then here's Paul. You know, I think that Paul's sinning. I'm sure he is. He's sinning by not accepting money from you. 
Don't, don't buy into this fake humility, I don't want your money. He's deceiving you. You know what? I wouldn't be surprised if he was publicly saying, I don't want your money, but quietly taking money behind closed doors from certain influential members. Oh, he's crafty, that Paul. Don't trust him. This man doesn't love you. He's just taking advantage of you. And so Paul has to defend himself against these charges in this letter. Let's look at three places where he does this in this letter. Look at 2 Corinthians 7.2. 2 Corinthians 7.2. And then you can understand why he argues the way he does in this passage. 2 Corinthians 7.2. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Now look ahead at chapter 11, verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Did I sin by doing that? Look ahead to chapter 12, verse 16. But granting that I myself did not burn you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. These guys were really something, weren't they? And yet, despite all these discouragements, Paul keeps pressing forward because he teaches us that the God we worship is a great encourager. The God we worship is a great encourager. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort or encourage others. Friends, it is this God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has removed the veil of unbelief from our hardened hearts by the Spirit. It is this God who makes us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. It is this God who in Christ always leads His people in triumphal procession. And through us, through our trials, our afflictions, our discouragements, He spreads the fragrance of His knowledge everywhere. And so, friends, as we live our Christian lives as, as gospel-speaking sufferers, and as we minister to one another in our body, as we give ourselves to, to work in faith for each other's spiritual growth and joy, what should we do when we get discouraged and are tempted to lose heart? What should we do? Well, three things. Number one, remember the mercy of God. Remember the mercy of God. Look at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. You know, losing heart is the Bible's way of describing what happens when your discouragement causes you to grow so weary that you give up. Ever feel like that? Of giving up? Throwing in the towel. You know, perhaps you've been praying for the salvation of your family members, and they only seem to be hardening their hearts even more. And so you start to wonder what's the use? Why even bother praying? 
You spend several hours every week to disciple a sister in the congregation and you have to make all kinds of arrangements so that you don't neglect your responsibilities as a mother and a wife and you labor for the spiritual good of this sister and she still keeps rejecting your counsel. Still keeps making foolish decisions. Still keeps dishonoring the Lord. And you start to, start to wonder, is all this effort worth it? Perhaps you're bold about your faith at your workplace and you maintain your integrity at all times because you want people to know that you are a Christian and it's because you believe the gospel that you act and behave this way. And yet, you seem to be the guy that your boss wants to pick on all the time. And you start to wonder, Maybe if you weren't so open about your Christian faith, maybe people would like you more and treat you better. Or if you're like me, you preach the gospel every Sunday, you're a pastor, and you see that no one comes to faith. And you start to lose heart. What should you do? Well, Paul says, we ought to remember that we have this ministry by the mercy of God. This verse begins with the word, therefore, telling us that this is the conclusion of what was previously said. Well, what ministry is Paul speaking of? Well, he's speaking about the glorious ministry of the new covenant that God has entrusted to believers, to us. It's the ministry of life. It's the ministry of righteousness. It's a ministry that far exceeds the ministry of Moses in glory. It is a ministry that has everlasting glory. It is the ministry of the Spirit who frees people from their spiritual blindness and brings them into the eternal kingdom of Christ. It is the ministry that enables us to be transformed by the very same gospel that we preach into ever-increasing Christ-likeness. And Paul says all of this, all of this, our unveiling, our hope of glory, our confidence in Christ, our privilege of ministering to one another, all of it is by the mercy of God. And Paul says we do not lose heart. Therefore, we do not lose heart. We don't quit because we know that everything we have received is because of God's mercy. Beloved, I, I wonder how often in the midst of your trials do you turn your thoughts towards the mercy of God, to His compassion, to His kindness towards you. How often do we remember that He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does He repay us according to our iniquities? As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Beloved, perhaps you should take your eyes off your trial for just a moment and meditate on God's mercy to you in Christ. Think about the glory of what Christ has accomplished for you. That's what you need to think about. This letter itself moves us in that direction. You remember where the word mercy first appears in this letter? 
chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, this God, is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Isn't that what we sing? Oh, my weary brothers and sisters, turn your eyes to the glory of God's mercy to you in Christ. And the afflictions of this earth will grow strangely dim. So think about that burden of guilt. Your burden of guilt that he has taken away. Reflect on the assurance of forgiveness that you have. Think about the incomparable joy of being reconciled to God and being called his child. Think about the, the privilege of being a member of his body. The freedom to overcome sin and temptation by the power of his spirit. The sweet fellowship that we have with our triune God and one another that not even death can take away. Think about the resurrection glory that awaits us. And that wonderful promise that we have in his word that even in the depths of our despair, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Think about those undeserved and extravagant mercies that you and I have received in Christ. You know, so often in our troubles, if we're honest, we're not thinking about the mercy of God. We're thinking about the entitlement of man. We're not thinking about those undeserved blessings. No, we're occupied with what we think we deserve. I don't deserve these troubles. Why are these things happening? Why are things not going my way? Why aren't things not going according to plan? How dare my boss treat me like this? Why am I not seeing spiritual results if I'm doing all the right things? Isn't this supposed to be the formula? Why doesn't the ministry formula work? Why doesn't this person respond in the way I want? Why does she not grow in holiness at the speed that I want her to grow? Isn't that true? When you're speaking the truth in love, you've been engaged in this glorious new covenant ministry, and yet discouragement seems to follow you around like an unwanted stray cat. Beloved, have you forgotten that our Father, the Father of mercies, is the one who always leads you in triumphal procession? We know this, don't we? But trials can often function like, like blinders on horses. You know, they can move our gaze away from the Lord and instead fix it on ourselves and on our troubles. Are you in trouble this morning? Do you know a weary mother? Are you aware of a brother struggling to fight for joy in his battle against sin? Do you know of a sister whose affliction is making it hard for her to pray. Then, beloved, there's your ministry opportunity right there. This is why God put you here in this body with your particular gifts. Go and minister to them. Remind them of God's mercy. Be with them. Pray with them. And pray that the Lord would work powerfully in their hearts through your gospel words. Do this so that they won't lose heart. You, Christian, are the means that the Lord uses to help your fellow Christian pilgrims persevere till the end.
Beloved, the God we worship is sovereign over our troubles. And He has good sanctifying purposes for your troubles and your discouragements. Paul himself learned this through his troubles. There was a time when he was so overwhelmed that he took his eyes off the Lord. And he came pretty close to losing heart in Asia, didn't he? We saw that in 1 Corinthians 1, 8-9. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And what was God teaching Paul through that experience? Well, he says what God was teaching him. He writes, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So if you're nearing discouragement, or maybe you're already discouraged, then meditate on the glory of His mercy to you in Christ. You know, if you don't feel like reading your Bible, have someone else read it to you. Remember that we were once dead in our sins, and we deserved God's wrath, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. No matter what your trial may be, no matter the anguish, if you are in Christ, remember how great are the riches of God's mercies towards you. And remember, you will never run out of His mercies. Remember His mercy, and He will raise you up from the depths of despair. You know, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs once wrote, Name any affliction that is upon you. Any. Whatever your affliction is this morning. Name any affliction that that is upon you. There is a sea of mercy to swallow it up. If you pour a bucketful of water on the floor of your house, it makes a great show, a great mess. But if you throw it into the sea, there is no sign of it. So afflictions considered in themselves, we think are very great. But let them be considered with the sea of God's mercies we enjoy. And then they are not so much. They are nothing in comparison. But friends, remembering God's mercy should not only encourage us to persevere in our labors, to not give up, it should also encourage us to not give in, to not give in to those kinds of practices in Christian ministry that would not only be incompatible with someone who knows the mercy of God, but also incompatible with the message of the mercy of God. And so Paul, knowing the transforming mercy of God in his own life, responds to his accusers by presenting the simplicity of his ministry. Look at verse 2. <clears throat> but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. You know, Paul says that this is characteristic of true apostolic ministry. And friends, this should be characteristic of our ministry in the local church. He says we have renounced, we reject anything that is sinful and shameful. The NASB says the things hidden because of shame. Things done in the dark, done in secret. In other words, we know they're wrong. That's why we hide them. Keep in mind that these men were accusing Paul of being deceitful when it came... When it, when it came to his financial dealings. 
And he says, we refuse to practice cunning. There's no trickery involved. Or to tamper with God's word. When he taught that Christians had been freed from the law of sin and death, when he spoke of the law administration coming to an end, they thought he was distorting God's word. When in reality, they were, they were the ones who were distorting God's word. They were the ones who could not see the greater glory and the sufficiency of the gospel. You remember Paul calls these men peddlers of God's word in, in 2 Corinthians 2.17. They were hucksters wanting to make a quick buck. He calls them deceitful workmen in 2 Corinthians 11.13. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15, he calls them servants of Satan, pretending to be servants of righteousness. Brothers, this is how God's mercy in Christ changes us and helps us renounce and refuse all that is not honoring to the Lord and to His purposes. Think about the glory of God's mercy to us in Christ. If we could do nothing that would merit our salvation, if it was all of God's mercy demonstrated to us in the cross of Christ that made us alive and free from the power of sin, if it was because of His mercy that the veil of unbelief was lifted and we were given the abiding gift of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> and if it is by God's mercy that we are being transformed by His Spirit, who empowers us through faith for gospel ministry, if we with unveiled faces gaze upon the glory of His mercy to us in Christ, <clears throat> then we will rightly see and understand that these underhanded tactics are powerless to achieve God's purposes. And they will lose their charm in the light of the glory of God's mercy and our transformed hearts won't be drawn towards them. You see, this is why Paul did not rely on all those things that these false apostles were relying on, rhetoric and self-promotion. You know, Paul teaches us that the wisdom of this world is, is folly with God and that God has not only judged the wisdom of the world in the cross, but that he, is all, but that he also actively works against the wisdom of this world. That's why Paul did not preach the gospel using the clever rhetoric of Corinthian speakers. Because he did not want to empty the cross of its saving power. 1 Corinthians 1.17 Beloved, this is why we don't need worldly marketing tactics to draw people to Christ. And we certainly don't need fake healings and false promises that God will make you wealthy if you come to our church. Friends, if we understand the mercy of God, and if we understand the message of the mercy of God, then we won't comply with all the definitions and the practices of this world because we will see them for what they truly are. They are means and methods that God has condemned. We can and we must renounce and reject every worldly value, message, and method. Instead, in simplicity, in simplicity, we ought to do what the Lord has called us to do. Trusting in the wisdom and power of His saving and transforming word. Paul says we renounce and reject these underhanded ways. Instead, we do this. Look at the verse. But by the open statement of the truth, by a bold declaration, by a plain disclosure. Paul here is referring to the apostolic preaching of the cross. 
You know, this is another way of saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And all I have to do is simply announce what God has done for sinners through Jesus Christ. That there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Brothers and sisters, this is your ministry as a member of this body. You are called to a ministry of speaking and not a ministry of silence. And notice what he calls this ministry. It's about openly stating what? What does he call the gospel? The truth. The truth. We are not, we are not proclaiming our religious preferences. You and I are not called to the greater glory of the ministry of personal opinions. We are called to the ministry of truth. Confronting a sister in her hard-heartedness, that's the ministry of truth. Talking to a brother about how his cultural thinking is hindering his spiritual growth, that's the ministry of truth. Telling someone to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the ministry of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And that means if the gospel is true, if the gospel is true, then every other religion, every other way of salvation is false because that is the very nature of truth. If people struggle to understand this, when you are telling them about the gospel, then you need to tell them that when we say it is true, we mean that this message is a fact just as much as we would say that gravity exists or that the sun rises in the east. In fact, this word of truth is more real than those two realities because this word created those realities. Paul says, by an open statement of this gospel truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You know, Paul is not saying that the apostles are all about patting themselves on the back. That they're looking for approval from the congregation. No, that's not what he means. Look at the text. He says, but by an open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves. The truth itself is the means by which they are commended. That's the only recommendation they need. God's Spirit, working through the gospel, will open the eyes of the listeners to help them recognize true gospel proclaimers. You know, this is similar to how Paul points to the Corinthians as his letter of recommendation. He preached the truth, the Spirit caused them to be born again, they believed the truth and were indwelt by the Spirit, and that was sufficient proof of the genuineness of his ministry. Beloved, you don't need to be a fancy talker or an influential person in society to be a faithful minister of the gospel. Present the gospel plainly to whoever God in his providence brings to you. 
Paul says we would commend ourselves by the truth to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, this ministry is carried out under the watchful eye of God. So Paul is not making empty claims here. And neither are we when we present the gospel. It is a truth claim that we lay on everyone's conscience. Now remember that the conscience is a human faculty. It's that mental sense or, or, or cognitive process by which you either approve or disapprove of something. And we know that apart from Christ, our consciences are evil and they need to be cleansed. But the gospel is nevertheless something we lay on people's consciences. We do this because people may be immoral as sinners, but as image bearers of God, they are not amoral. They have a conscience. Therefore, we hold out the truth and say, this is truth. This is truth. Don't you see that God's word says you're a sinner, dead in your sins, and you will stand one day before God and face his judgment. And the only way you can be saved is to turn to this God of mercy who sent his son to save you. Repent and believe in him. Some of you find this simple task overwhelming because you start to think of all the objections that people may have and, and your inability to answer them. But beloved, people come to faith not because we have all the answers, but because the Lord who is the Spirit removes that veil over their hardened hearts. And He works as you trust Him and obey Him by plainly stating the truth of that message of Christ and Him crucified. So it's okay. It's, it's okay if you look like a fool who doesn't have the answer to every objection. Plainly state the truth and leave the heavy lifting to the sovereign Holy Spirit. You know, now it's possible that these false teachers were saying, oh well, well Paul, here's a question for you, Paul. If, you're, if your gospel is so awesome, if it's true, well how come we don't get it? We who have these phenomenal letters of recommendation, we who have visions from God, your gospel is so glorious as you claim, well, how can people reject you and, and, and kick you out of their towns? If he's an apostle like he says he is, what does this say about his success rate? And that brings us to a second truth we must remember whenever we are tempted to lose heart in ministry. Remember the state of our hearers and the sovereignty of God. Remember the state of our hearers and the sovereignty of God. This is how Paul accounts for that response. Look at verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now when Paul speaks of, of veiling, he's referring to the spiritual blindness of unbelievers. Those who cannot see the saving glory of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And we saw that in chapter 3 verse 14, didn't we? Their minds were hardened, he says. The minds of the Israelites whom Moses led in the wilderness, their minds were hardened. And so were the minds of the Israelites during Paul's day. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. This unveiling happens because the spirit of Jesus moves when the gospel is proclaimed. So friends, there are only two kinds of people in this world, veiled and unveiled. And Paul here says that the only reason some people do not believe the gospel and trust in his preached word is not because 
he's not impressive enough by Corinthian standards. It's not because his speech is, isn't polished enough. It's because those people are perishing. Now what's going on that prevents them from seeing? Now at this point, I want to point out that seeing in this text, seeing is nothing but a metaphor for, for hearing. Because if you look at this passage, the truth is being spoken to be heard in verse 2. It is being proclaimed to be heard in verse 5 and verse 6. God is saying there is knowledge being imparted, knowledge to be heard. So when he speaks of seeing or not being able to see because it's veiled, understand that he's really saying that they don't have ears to hear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So why is the gospel veiled? Why can't they see? Look at verse 4. In their case, that is the people to whom Paul's gospel is veiled, in their case, the God of this world, literally the God of this age, the one who has sway over this present evil age, that's Satan, he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So more metaphor here. He's blinded not their eyes, but their minds. And that tells you that this is a spiritual blindness. He's working in such a way so as to hinder their understanding. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Did you notice that? D don't pass over that too quickly. He hasn't blinded neutral people. He's blinded unbelievers. These people are already dead in their sin. Their minds are hardened in unbelief. This is how Ephesians 4.18 describes unbelievers. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Unbelievers walk in darkness, not because they are neutral to the darkness, because they love the darkness. And that's why they are under God's judgment. Listen to John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So in this sense, what we have here is, is a sort of double blindness. You know, unbelievers are spiritually blind because of their sin. A veil lies over their hearts and then Satan also blinds them. It's a very complex blinding. And to what end? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. That's what the gospel is. It's light. The message of the gospel is light that breaks into the darkness. It illumines the darkened mind. It opens blind eyes. And what is this gospel about? Look at the text. It is the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends, Scripture tells us that <clears throat> Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15, He is the radiance of the glory of God. All the perfections of His majesty, the exact imprint of His nature, Hebrews 1.3. He is the exact representation of His being. So much so that Jesus can say to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The only way you can know God is through Jesus Christ, His Son. That's the message of the gospel and Satan hates that. He doesn't want already hardened sinners to see that, to hear that. And Paul says that's why these people can't see the glory of the gospel that he's preaching. Because Satan has blinded them. 
But implicit in this assessment is that these false teachers were also being kept from seeing the glory of Christ in the gospel. After all, why would Paul move from veiled Israelites in Moses' day to veiled Israelites in his day and then to, did you notice it says, the unbelievers? Why would he say that if he was not thinking of a particular group of unbelievers at Corinth? In all likelihood, he may have had these false teachers in mind. If they could only see the glory of Christ, they would not glory in the old covenant. But what he says of these unbelievers, friends, is true of all unbelievers. This is a universal problem. And it's a demonic problem. And anyone who tells you that you shouldn't be speaking the gospel or calling unbelievers to put their faith in Jesus Christ is a servant of Satan. Always remember that. But the question also applies to the unrepentant minority at Corinth, doesn't it? If they do not repent and turn back to Paul and his apostolic gospel, they too will find themselves among those who are perishing. Hence that warning at the end of the letter. Examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. Beloved, if you ever find yourselves being discouraged in your evangelism, remember the spiritual condition of your hearers. They're blind. They're being kept from seeing the glory of Christ by demonic forces that we cannot see. So pray for them. Our evangelism is spiritual warfare. And all we need to do is trust in the power of God's word. We will see that in verse 6. We can trust in the power of the gospel because it changed us and it continues to change us. So beloved, if you're discouraged in your evangelism, remember the spiritual condition of your hearers, but also remember that the God who shows us mercy is sovereign. He's sovereign. When Moses on the mountain asks to see God's glory, the Lord says to him, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Paul in Romans 9, 15 to 16, cites that passage to explain to us why some people come to faith and some don't. And he says, so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Isn't that what we're supposed to remember so that we don't lose heart? His mercy is a sovereign mercy. Beloved, the Holy Spirit, when you're sharing the gospel to someone, always remember this, the Holy Spirit is not scratching his head and saying, oh my this is complicated. There's a stony heart, that's number one. And then there's Satan blinding him. Don't like Satan. Plus, I've heard that, that this person is, is from a hard to reach people group. So I, I don't know what I'm going to do. He's hard to reach. You know, anyone who, who thinks like that doesn't know the scriptures or the power of God. At any moment, God can shine His light into any human soul through His Word and cause them to be born again just like that. Nothing is impossible 
for our God. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power that no one can stop. The sovereign Lord shows mercy to whoever he wills. So friends, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged, but trust in his mercy. And let the Lord's sovereign mercy be glorified as he calls to himself whoever he wants. You see, what Paul is saying here is similar to what he says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or consider 1 Corinthians 1.22-24. For Jews demand signs, that's impressive to them, and Greeks seek wisdom, that's impressive to them, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, by God's sovereign mercy, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, if Paul had been going around marketing himself like these false apostles had, then he wouldn't have had any resistance. But he makes it clear that he does have that resistance because he proclaims Christ. Look at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. The message that we preach to unbelievers and believers is not about the greatness of the apostles. And friends, it's not about us. Look at the text. We proclaim, we preach, we herald, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ Jesus, the Messiah, as Lord. We proclaim Him as God. This is about the announcement of His Lordship. That the sinless Son of God took on flesh and He suffered and died for the sins of His people. And He did this for all who would repent of their sins and put their trust in Him. And then he rose from the dead with a new resurrection body and he ascended into heaven from where he now reigns as the risen, glorified Christ, the true and rightful heir of this world, not Satan. Jesus Christ is King and Lord of all. The nations can rage all that they want. But he is Lord, the one who has authority in heaven, on earth, and he is head of his church. Satan doesn't want you to see that. He doesn't want you to see his glory, that he is Lord over every Hindu and Muslim and atheist and Buddhist and every living creature. Think about the, the bright noonday sun. The sun is the sun, even though a blind man cannot see the sun. Satan doesn't want you to see the glory of Christ. But friend, if you're not a Christian, I want to speak to you. Think about this. Consider God's mercy to you, that, that you are here. At Grace Church, of all the places, you're here, on this day, this time, hearing this message. That's God's mercy to you. That's God's mercy to you. So turn to the Lord Jesus, for He alone is God. Repent of your sins and put your trust in His saving death, and you will be saved. Look to Jesus, 
Believe that He is God in the flesh and put your trust in Him and no one else. His name is the name above every other name. He is Lord and He is the only one who can set you free from the power of sin and the power of Satan. Point number three. Here's the third truth we must remember whenever we are tempted to lose heart in ministry. Number three. Remember who you are before the Lord. Remember who you are before the Lord. We don't proclaim this message because as Christians we think we are better than others. No, we are slaves of Christ who is Lord of all. Paul says we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, look at the text, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You know, as that Sri Lankan missionary D.T. Niles once famously said, evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And Paul says, as we, Paul says we engage in this ministry, this glorious new covenant ministry, for Jesus' sake, for His glory. We are servants proclaiming the glory of another. See, that's not, the wor- that's not what the world expects of, of leaders. It's certainly not what these false apostles expected of Paul. No, the world wants leaders to be what? Powerful. To to lord it over others. To proclaim our glory and what we can deliver and what we can accomplish for others. But the Lord uses weak and insignificant people who speak of a glory that the world cannot see. A glory hidden in a weak message. But it's a powerful message that can save them. This is God's wise design. Christians are called to be servants proclaiming the glory of another, being so in awe of the glory of the one who saved us. We are called to do this not just among unbelievers, but even among believers in our ministry to one another. We serve For Jesus' sake. See, this is why Paul labors to minister to the Corinthians, because he himself had his eyes open to see the gospel of the glory of Christ on that road to Damascus. That's That's the fundamental reason why you and I minister to unbelievers and minister to one another. Here's the reason. Verse 6. For... God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Paul here is referring to that word that God spoke at creation. Genesis 1-3, when he said, let there be light, and there was light. Our creator God, the father of mercies, he has done what? Shown in our hearts. The work of conversion is the work of new creation. His word is light. He has shown in our hearts to give the light, to illumine our darkened minds, to help us understand. Understand what? It is the light of the knowledge. He enables us to understand truth. Well, specifically of what? He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. His saving glory. Not in Moses' face but in the face of Jesus Christ. His glory is seen 
in the cross. The world doesn't recognize this power. His power is manifest in weakness and in suffering. That's what the cross was all about, wasn't it? Friends, this is Paul's theological defense of his apostleship and the glory of New Covenant ministry. God's glory, His splendor, that which God said in the Old Testament that no man could directly see and live, that glory has been revealed to us in the face of a mediator, in the risen and glorified human face of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers, but the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ opens blind eyes and dispels the darkness. But you have to understand that Paul is not doing theology here simply for its own sake. No, he's dealing with the problem in Corinth. God's glory is not a visible phenomenon as it was in in Moses' day. It's not to be found in the values of the world. It is to be found where, according to verse 6, in the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the new covenant by ordinary Christians. Notice where we see this glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It is seen in the proclamation of the gospel. It can be seen with the ears of faith. Beloved, we have been entrusted with a powerful word. With a powerful word. Remember that the reason that Paul sees himself as a servant is because God has shown. He himself has been changed by the same light of the gospel that he proclaims, and so have we. You know, that's the principle we see here in verses in verse 5 and 6. Those who have received the light must proclaim the light. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is why we exist as a church. Every Sunday we, we print the same thing, say, Look at your bulletin, page two, right there on the left side. From the beginning, from the birth of this church, for the past 10 years, this has been printed in the bulletin. I don't know if you've seen it. It says, welcome to this gathering of Grace Evangelical Church, Sharjah. We exist to spread the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of God's glory among all the nations, 2 Corinthians 4.6, 4.6, Romans 1.5. And that's never going to change. That's why we exist. That's why we exist. That's our purpose. That's why the Lord has put us here on this earth. Brothers and sisters, God has enlightened you. He has made you alive for the work of ministry. And just like our Savior, you and I gather in fellowship, not to be served, but to serve. If you're discouraged in your ministry to other brothers and sisters, remember two things. That's what I want to say in closing. Remember these two things. Number one, remember what the Lord has done for you. Isn't that the greatest encouragement to your soul? And God has shown in your heart. No one has seen God. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known, says John. And brothers and sisters, we have come to know Him. That should be your greatest encouragement. 
Remember what the Lord has done for you. And then here's the second thing. Remember that you are ministering to brothers and sisters who are unveiled. Be encouraged by that. You know, that was the confidence that Paul had in these Corinthians. So trust that the Lord will work through His Word as you minister to one another and work for each other's joy. This truth ought to encourage us to persevere. If the glory of the old covenant faded away and the glory of the new covenant stays, it remains, then we, that's you and I, who are ministers of the gospel, should also remain. We should persevere. We should endure. We should not give up. That's the logic of the passage. So don't lose heart. Gaze upon the glory of Jesus Christ in His Word, and there you will find comfort for your weary and discouraged souls. Keep your eyes fixed on the Lord of glory and be children of light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of your Spirit in unveiling us. We thank you, O Lord, that we can see with the eyes of faith and that we can trust in you and walk according to your ways. We thank you, O Lord, for the privilege of understanding your word. O Lord, equip us, empower us by your Spirit to minister to one another the same gospel that we heard in the beginning and to trust in that gospel to transform us from one degree of glory to another. Lord, we pray that this would happen as we minister to one another so that your glory would be put on display through this congregation. In Jesus' name we pray.